0: insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio.
1: Hi there. Welcome back. Welcome to the Patrick Madrid Show. My name is Patrick Madrid. What a coincidence. Hi there. Hi there. You sound like me. Hi there. Yeah. Yeah, he's back. Um, The number 888-914-9149. That number is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters, 888-914-9149. Also, email you send it to me at, at relevantradio.com. I'd like to get straight to one that came in overnight. And this is from a listener in Scotland, which makes me happy. Every time we get a, an email or a call or some communication from listeners overseas, it just makes me happy because it shows how big the reach of Relevant Radio has become. Thank God. And she's actually responding to my response to her email yesterday. Her name is Eileen, and here's what she said in her follow-up. First of all, thank you, she said, for reading my email and asking about that phrase in Latin, ecclesia suplet. You may remember I talked about that. It's a a phrase that refers to—well, it means from the Latin into the English, the church supplies. And it has to do, among other things, with things like the authority to— In an emergency situation—I used an example yesterday that some war has taken place, and everything is devastated, and a bishop can't get in touch with the pope to find out if he has his permission to consecrate more bishops, because everyone's been wiped out. And I know this is a far-fetched scenario, but this would apply in my reading of what the Church teaches about Ecclesia Suplet, or the Church Supplies. It would be an example in which, under certain circumstances, the Church would supply, in the case of that bishop, the authorization to move forward and consecrate another bishop. Ordinarily, it would be something the the, po- or the bishop would have to receive permission from the pope. So the Church supplies for certain things in certain circumstances. Another example would be if a priest— is traveling, and he doesn't have faculties from the local bishop to hear confessions, he should not hear anyone's confession. He shouldn't say, hey, I'll be happy to hear confessions, Father, on Saturday afternoon, because if he hasn't received the faculties or the permissions necessary from the bishop, then that would be an invalid sacrament if he were to do it. However, the church supplies, ecclesia suplet, In a situation where he may be traveling and he has no permission from the bishop and he comes across a car accident and there are people dying on the side of the road and identify themselves as Catholics, he can hear their confession, as it's said in Latin, in extremis, meaning if death is imminent. He has the faculties automatically supplied by the church in a case like that. So those are two unusual but not unheard of situations. So with regard to that, the question had been, Eileen's question had been in her first email, well, doesn't this apply in the case of a priest using a defective formula for, let's say, the sacrament of of, uh, baptism and said something that wasn't the valid formula, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, what if the priest said something other than that or didn't say it at all, that kind of thing? And so her initial question was, doesn't Ecclesia Suplet apply? And I think we fully dispatched. And I read a section from a canon lawyer who talked about this issue. So in any case, now here is her email this morning. She says, uh, I was surprised that Ecclesia Suplet doesn't apply when a priest fails to give absolution correctly. And she was writing in response to an earlier caller who went through a, sit- a situation where the priest didn't appear At least as far as she could tell, he didn't appear to give her the absolution. So, Eileen says, Imagine Mr. Bloggs, who has committed very grave sins. He reads the dogma of hell and is moved to repentance. Properly disposed, he examines his conscience, is sorry for his sins, makes a humble, full, and sincere confession, and performs the penance the priest assigns him. He has been away from the sacraments for a long time and doesn't recognize that the words of absolution are not said correctly. He goes away, happy to have left his sins at the foot of the cross, receives Holy Communion, and rejoices at God's goodness and mercy. Is he going to be sent to hell for the priest's error? The answer is no, by the way. Whether that was accidental or malicious, I can't believe that he will be. You're right, he wouldn't be. Maybe it's not ecclesia suplet that ensures he is forgiven. It might just be the infinite mercy of God, who will surely not condemn Mr. Bloggs for the failure of Father X. But I don't accept he goes unforgiven, which must be the case if the sacrament is valid. Actually, that's the sticking point right there. Before I continue with her email, the, the issue of ecclesia suplet does not apply in this situation, but something similar does, and that is the man is not responsible for the fact that the priest omitted his... His duty to say the right formula of the sacrament I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Mr. Bloggs is certainly not at fault for that, and he believes that he received a, um, a good confession. So let's say he never realizes that, he never knows that. Well, the next time he goes to confession and he confesses whatever sins he may, mortal sins, let's say, that he's aware of, well, he's he's in the state of grace. In fact, we could say that in a way similar to how if you, Eileen, were conscious of a, a serious sin on your soul and you wanted to go to confession and you intended to go to confession, but you were stopped from going to confession because you you had a sudden, I don't know, brain aneurysm, God forbid, or something like that and you you're struck down dead. Well, you were you were intending to go to confession you presumably would have even said the act of contrition, you've repented in your heart. That is in itself sufficient to die in the state of grace, if you have what's called perfect contrition, which is sorrow for sin out of love of God, which this man clearly has. Mr. Mr. Bloggs has that. He has perfect contrition. He even went so far as to confess his sins and go to confession, even though it was defective because of the error of the priest. So no, he would not be condemned to hell. He would he would have been forgiven of his sins. He would not have received sacramental absolution, which is the norm, but we could compare him, for example, to the good thief on the cross. He did not receive sacramental absolution, not in, in the formula that the church would recognize, but by his faith and love of Jesus in, in extremis. Jesus declared that he would be saved. So it's, it's in a way similar to that. So she continues... She says in Laura's situation, the lady who wrote in the first place, where she did suspect the absolution wasn't correct, I'm not sure what I would do. I have made confessions in the past, Eileen says, which included sins which were, that were incredibly difficult to put into words. I was so relieved to get it over, I would have been devastated to have to go through them again. Understandable. So let's pause there. If you Let's, let's look at this from two vantage points. If you didn't know, like Mr. Bloggs in that scenario, if you didn't know that the priest either omitted the formula of the sacrament or didn't say it correctly or in some other way was doing something that was invalid and you never found that out, God, as you say, does not hold that against you. The sacrament would have been invalid, objectively speaking, But to return to that earlier comment, you you would have made an act of perfect contrition, being sorry for your sins out of love for God, fear of punishment, yes, but primarily out of love for God, and a firm purpose of amendment, etc., etc., all of which were embodied in that defective confession that you went to. So that in itself is sufficient for should you die to die in a state of grace even though you didn't have a chance to go to a valid or have a valid confession. So that's one way to look at it. The second way to look at it would be if you did find out, oh my gosh, oh, the police just arrested this guy who was going around town pretending to be a priest. He wasn't really a priest. He was he was just like faking it. And amazingly, oddly enough, there have been... Situations like that where some charlatan poses as a priest and he's not hes not giving valid sacraments. So in a case like that, then the, the option there would be more painful, but it would be necessary, and that would be you would go to confession again, and as painful as it would be, as difficult as it would be, you would steal yourself and you would say, when I went to confession last time, turns out it was an invalid confession. Here are the sins that I confessed and you grit your teeth, and you say them all over again. Difficult, yes. Challenging, yes. But sometimes that's the difficulty that we face. Now, the last part of her email is this. She says, probably some of your listeners have a tendency to scrupulosity. Discussion of this topic could put unhelpful suggestions of possibly invalid confessions into their heads. It's a topic that needs careful handling. I agree with you, and I agree with your premise that there are people who do suffer from scrupulosity, so we have to be careful. And that's something I seek to do. So hopefully, in God's eyes, I'm handling it carefully enough. But it's a topic that, as you rightly point out, needs to be discussed, and very often people listening, there's nowhere else they're going to hear about this, because Father McGillicuddy, in his uh, homily or sermon at Mass, he's going to be preaching on the readings, hopefully, and this is the kind of thing that touches people's lives directly, but they may, not, they may not ever hear about this or heard it explained or hear it explained unless they hear it in a context like Relevant Radio. And she concludes by saying, thanks for your program. I've been listening for a few months and I have learned a lot. I'm so grateful to hear that, Eileen. Truly grateful. And all I would ask of you is if you would just help us reach more people in your area. I've been to Scotland before. One of my favorite places on earth. Beautiful. And I could just imagine next time I'm there driving through the little t- towns and, and villages and seeing Relevant Radio bumper stickers on the car. Wouldn't that be great? So please uh, help us by telling your friends about Relevant Radio and they can download the app. And that'll be great. Thank you, Eileen. Let's go now to Joe, waiting patiently in Doylestown, PA. Good morning, Joe.
2: Hello, Patrick. Uh, question for you. I was uh, watching a Protestant...
1: <laughs> yeah, I got two.
2: I was watching a Protestant give a review on the Greek Orthodox Study Bible, Okay, and he seemed very well-versed in the Fathers, which bewildered me as to why he was still Protestant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first thing is, he kept making a distinction that the Greek churches in the East were the first and the oldest, which I've always believed the Greeks Orient, and the Roman Rite were just all around at one time, and were all in one accord. So that's the first one.
1: Why don't we pause? That. Why don't we pause here and we'll talk about that? So the first church, as such, uh, was established, or the first local church, we should say, was established in Jerusalem. And on the day of Pentecost, we could say that the church was inaugurated by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then the apostles and other apostolic men went outward from there and began to evangelize. Saint Paul's The second half of the book of Acts, for example, details St. Paul's travels in bringing the gospel to Greece and to Macedonia and to what is now Turkey, called Asia in those days. And so the churches in these different places were planted by these apostolic figures. And ultimately, both Peter and Paul, St. Peter, St. Paul, they went to Rome, which was the center, obviously, of the Roman Empire— St. Peter ministered there for approximately 25 years. St. Paul came and went a number of times. But he and St. Peter both were martyred in Rome. And so even though it is true, it's not really a disputable point. It is true that the church was established earlier in time in places like Jerusalem and Corinth and Ephesus and Thessalonica, etc. It didn't change the fact that because St. Peter died as a martyr in Rome and his successor who followed after him, and his successor after him, etc. not to mention St. Paul dying in Rome, the early church regarded Rome as the epicenter of the church, and that it had a, a primacy, not only a primacy of honor, but also a primacy of jurisdiction that extended over the other churches, the other local churches. So, from the standpoint of how the Church understood this question, as opposed to how some 21st century Protestant commentator might understand it, or misunderstand it, as the case may be, it was unanimously agreed early on that the Church in Rome had this special primacy. And one way to demonstrate that is to look at, especially in the early Church controversies over Christology and Trinitarian theology, all the errors that arose, Arianism— or the errors about the the two natures of Christ, or the two wills of Christ, and so on. Invariably, what I find fascinating, these heresies arose in those Eastern churches. They arose in places like Alexandria, and in what we think of today as the lands of the Eastern Orthodox churches. And invariably, as the patristic record demonstrates, they were settled by an appeal to the Bishop of Rome. To settle this issue. Now, sometimes it was done in the context of an ecumenical council, and the bishop of Rome would approve the the canons and decrees of a given council. In some cases, he was present. In many cases, he wasn't present, but he sent delegates. But we always see this consistent appeal to the authority of the bishop of Rome to settle these disputes. So that's also an indisputable fact. The patristic record bristles with countless examples of these things happening. So, to put it in a nutshell, what I would say is, what he's saying is technically true, but I think the conclusion he's drawing is untrue, based upon what you're telling me. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, he's identifying a a certain phenomenon that did exist, but it doesn't logically follow, or maybe better put, it doesn't theologically follow, or even biblically follow, that therefore those churches in some way have a primacy over the, the church at Rome. Does that make sense? Even if you don't agree with it, does that make sense to you?
2: No, 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 totally makes sense. I'm going to have to uh, go back and listen to the call and take the notes uh, to, to, to form a response. Um, great, thank you. But Here's mm-hmm. my second one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I asked him, what was his take on the early fathers, such as Ignatius of Antioch, you know, Irenaeus of Lone, Justin Martyr, and Clement of Rome? And, and he said they should all be read and taken account, but are not inspired or infallible. And I said, well, well he's right respond, that. But, I think he's, he's right. right about that, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he they may not be inspired, but through apostolic succession in their writings, the there is a historical unified perspective as to what they all believed, right?
1: Yes. I mean, there's what's known as the moral unanimity of the fathers. There there never was an absolute unanimity, meaning that every single last commentator that we would call a father that they all agreed on every single last detail. There are some, some things that they were universally in agreement on, something like the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, for example. So that was that was an example of things where they all indeed have a sort of absolute unanimity on a topic. But take the canon of the Old Testament, for example. Uh, someone as great and preeminent as St. Athanasius, he did not think that the deuterocanonical books, what the Protestants called the apocryphal books, he didn't think those belonged in the Old Testament. Uh, many other church fathers did. And so there were disputes on certain points, but th- the moral unanimity is present. St. Vincent of Lahrens, for example, he talks about w- those things that we know to be true through apostolic tradition, and I'm paraphrasing here from memory, but he says those things that were always and everywhere agreed upon by the bishops, by the fathers of the church. So he even invokes that in the 5th century as a principle for determining what is apostolically true and what might be an error. So the the gentleman you're talking about, he's correct in pointing out that they were not inspired. The only only inspired pope was uh, Pope Pope St. Peter. Uh, None of the other popes do we claim inspiration for. Um, the popes did have infallibility as a personal charism. So Pope Gregory the Great, for example, he was infallible, but he was not inspired. So this is all the more reason why, I guess, inadvertently the Protestant fellow that you're talking about, he's actually making our point for us. And that is, this is why, because the Church Fathers were not inspired, we have to read them in continuity with the Apostles and with Jesus and the Gospels. Right. And, and so what we are receiving from them through the Fathers is the authentic meaning of these teachings that come to us by the supervision of the Holy Spirit. So it's the fathers themselves who actually provide that continuity of the correct meaning. And whenever some divergent meaning would rise up, the way they were able to thwart it was not by an appeal to Scripture alone. The heretics did that. Arius did that. Nestorius did that. They would claim, well, the Bible says that... God is higher than Jesus, therefore Jesus can't be God. And the Church, the Orthodox, small O, Orthodox Catholic Church, would always combat these errors by an appeal to Scripture and apostolic tradition. So they could say, "This is you, what you're saying is not what the apostles meant by what they wrote. And we know what they meant by what they wrote, because they told their disciples, such as Ignatius of, of Antioch and others— so we have preserved in the church's apostolic tradition the authentic meaning of Scripture. And that's how the church was able to deal decisively with these heresies.
2: Okay. This is great. Thank you so much. There's a lot to chew on here, so I'll there uh, go is. back and, and listen to the recap. But I, as always, I appreciate it. I haven't called in a while because you, you propped me up and you got me... Um, anytime I go, you know, to, to have a discussion and a debate, I'm holding my own because of guys like you. So but every once in a while, there's one that stumps me. So Thank
1: oh, you that's OK. You know, we're all learning. We all have to keep learning. So if I can help you, that's great. I'm glad you called in again today, Joe. And some really good books on this topic. For those who are interested, I will mention what those are right after this quick timeout. You're listening to The Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Join Father Rocky this September for a pilgrimage to Poland and Prague. You'll visit the lands of St. John Paul the Great, St. Faustina, Our Lady of Czestochowa, and the infant child of Prague. Seats are limited. Information at relevantradio.com Poland. That's relevantradio.com Poland
0: connected to the conversation. Call now. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid is on now. Relevant Radio.
1: Some books that may be useful to you if you're interested in the church fathers. Obviously, you know, there are polemics out there and Eastern Orthodox believers will say one thing, Protestants will say another, Catholics will say something different. And I understand that. That's the world I lived in for many years, the world of Catholic apologetics. But evidence is evidence is evidence, and it's good to know what the evidence is. So one book that I really wish would come back into print, I don't know why it's not in print anymore. You might be able to get a straight copy. It's called Jesus, Peter, and the Keys. Um, Several co-authors, David Hess and the other co-authors. If you can get your hands on a copy of that, a used copy, get it, because it is a like a 400-page, maybe 500 pages, of direct quotations from primarily the Eastern Fathers. I'd like your thickest book, please. How about this one right here? It's called Jesus, Peter, and the Keys, and it's really good. I've got my copy stashed away at home in my personal library. I probably should bring it here to the studio, but in any case... Uh, That's a really good book if you can find it. Look around. You might be able to get a copy. And another really good book on the topic is called Rome and the Eastern Churches. And this is by a Dominican scholar, Father Aidan Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S, Father Aidan Nichols. He's a, a scholar, he's a priest, he's a scholar at Cambridge. And this is a very interesting, very helpful overview Of the split between what are now the Orthodox churches and the Catholic church, and gives a lot of details in that. I would also recommend two books by the same author, and uh, his name is Rod Bennett, by the way. The first is called Four Witnesses The Early Church in Her Own Words. And this takes into account four early, early, early church. Um, Documents. So we have the epistle from St. Clement of Rome, who was the Pope at the time, the Bishop of Rome, writing somewhere between the year 80 and maybe the year 95. I think most historians now are tending to date this epistle from about the year 80. A little bit after that, maybe. But anyway, St. Clement of Rome, his letter to the Corinthians, the epistles of St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a disciple of St. John the Apostle. It seems he also knew St. Peter. He learned the faith, he learned the gospel from at least one apostle, and on his way to be martyred in Rome, he was the Bishop of Antioch, which is now right at the border of Syria and in southern Turkey. He wrote a series of letters to the different churches he passed through under Roman guard on his way to Rome to be eaten by lions in the amphitheater. He also wrote a letter to uh, Papius. And so these letters preserve his teaching at the very end of the first century, beginning of the second century. He was martyred in the year 107. Then we have St. Justin Martyr, and also St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who came just within a generation after the time of St. Ignatius of Antioch. And what's interesting both about St. Justin Martyr and about St. Irenaeus is they were truly apologists in the classical sense of the word. So, for example, writing letters to the Roman emperor and explaining the gospel to him and and explaining to him why he was wrong for rejecting Jesus. So they went toe-to-toe with the powers that that were in those days. So that first book there is called Four Witnesses, again, by Rod Bennett. Now, he had a follow-up book called Four More Witnesses, and it basically follows the same um, motif as the first one. So this is more discussions or more writings, rather, of the, the Church Fathers, and this is before the year 325, and that is the, the time when the Emperor Constantine convoked the Council of uh, Nicaea, the First Council of Nicaea. That was to deal with the Arian heresy and the attack upon the divinity of Jesus, the attack upon the Blessed Trinity, and it was at that Council that the Church formally defined those dogmas, that would set the stage for later councils and later dogmas but these in four more witnesses these are church fathers and commentators before that era so we're talking the early early church and if if you really want to know what the early church believed these are examples because it's not like oh this is what we say they believe they're actually quoting directly from these figures you know what did they say in their own words um, lastly, there's another good book that just recently came out. It's called The Early Church Was Catholic by Joe Heshmeyer He works at Catholic Answers. And uh, this is a, more of a survey, but it's an analysis of the patristic writings that demonstrate that the early church, first, second, third, fourth century, and after that, they were not Protestants, they were not Calvary Chapel people, they were not um, name-it-and-claim-it Pentecostals, uh, they were not Mormon, they were not Jehovah's Witness, they were not certainly not Calvinists. They were Catholic, and they called themselves Catholic. And if you want the evidence, don't take it from me, but if you want the evidence, take it from the testimony of these early church authorities. What's the name of that book? And you'll draw your own conclusion. This one's called The Early Church Was Catholic. I'm sorry, the early church was the Catholic Church
2: Okay.
1: by Joe Heschmeyer. I've never met him, that I know of anyway, but the book is really good. Uh, Let's go back to the phones, 888-914-9149. Let's go to Chuck now in Florida. Hello, Chuck.
3: Hey, Patrick, how are you?
1: Doing well, thank you.
3: Hey, listen, I I just wanted to call and and, uh, tell you that I started listening to you when I lived in San Diego, there, uh, probably 10 years ago or more on my journey, I uh, okay. grew up Southern Baptist, uh, was taught a lot of anti Catholic rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is Catholic, uh, cradle Catholic. Uh, we were Protestant for all our lives. And on this journey, you guided me. And uh, last Sunday, I had my, um, uh, what is it? Um, <laughs> I'm, mm-hmm. I'm drawing a blank there. Um,
1: Baptism? Uh, No, you would have been baptized Uh, Yeah, I'm already
3: baptized. I had my confirmation, my first communion. My wife and my daughter were there, uh, and it was the first time they had been back in church in a decade. But I've been going, and I pray that they would come back one day also and join me. But, uh, yeah, you you were a great inspiration. You taught me so much. You dispelled. You actually, not only did you dispel, but you forced me, to go find as you I just wrote down all these books I've read so many books uh, uh on Ignatius and the early church fathers and Eusebius and uh Justin Martyr I've read that I read through all the fort uh all the um uh Protestant Reformation documents uh and uh, I chose uh Saint Charles Borromeo as as my um confirmation name uh as my saint mm. uh because he powerful is saint. saint of he is a very powerful saint, and he he taught. He he was the he's the saint of catechumens. He's the saint of uh, of priest uh, priestly teaching and bishops, and he and and that learning experience. Uh, and I actually went uh, when I was in San Diego. My first Catholic experience was at uh, St. Charles Borromeo Church in Point Loma, uh, oh, there by my house. What a and nice coincidence. Yeah. And, and so, uh, I'm I'm so I just excited. I feel I'm so excited. My first confession was a long one because I'm 60 years old. So mm. that was my first. <laughs> it took a long time to confess 60 years.
1: <laughs> How did you what was your hmm, what's the right word for it? How did you feel, for lack of a better word, when you finished with that confession first time in your life? What was it like for you receiving that sacrament uh. for the first time? Did you feel elated? Were you walking on air? I hear that a lot from people who have never been to confession.
2: I I
3: um I I wouldn't say I w- I was I was joyful. I was excited. Uh I went home and told my wife about it uh and talked to her. I told her everything that I confessed. I talked and I actually told her before I was going to confess it what I was going to confess. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm thankful that the priest had a long ear. He was willing to be patient with me because I had a lot to go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, um, I felt great. I just felt relieved. It's just a sense of relief and, and joy and just thanking mm-hmm. God for his mercy. Uh, and, and being Protestant, being from a Protestant background, that that is, I still go to a Protestant men's group Bible study and I share with them my Catholic faith. And what's their and reaction question, to that? uh well it's fun because i'm the only catholic in there uh and when they when they say things uh and and you you said it earlier in the show uh uh, sometimes out of ignorance uh they don't they've never done their homework and then when and i carry a a book a book full of uh, bag full of books with me uh including eusebius like uh I carry Stephen Ray, uh, Crossing the Tiber. I have Rome Sweet mm-hmm. Rome in my bag. I have a lot of books in my bag that I constantly reference. I have the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I have that's
1: a big bag. Can
3: show them it is a big backpack. Uh, it was my daughter's when she was in high school, and now she's grown and married. So I confiscated it. Now I use it as
1: my book bag. Do your Protestant friends give you a fair hearing generally? I mean, are they willing to listen, or do you find that they're, you know, I don't know, not disgusted, but they just maybe some of them have written you off because you became Catholic.
2: No,
3: as a matter of fact, what's really interesting is they are not hostile or in any way or antagonistic. And when I show them and one of my biggest what, what recently, I just wrote another paper. Uh, I'm retired military, uh, oceanographer, uh, officer. And I I wrote a paper about the brothers of Jesus based on some things that I had learned and read and seen. Mm -hmm. And I compiled all these things to show them that, you know, you can't just take the Bible and read it and interpret it on your own. It, that, that that's a falsehood, you know, the solo script is is so false. It it, it can't make sense. And I show them that and and they're very open. They're like, I didn't know that, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, I enjoy sharing with them our, the traditions and where they come from and the beauty of the, of the sacraments. Uh, and I just had our – we were just at study this morning here, and, and sharing. I was sharing with them the true presence, the, the soul divinity of Christ in the Eucharist and where that came from and showed them in the Didache and showed them how Ignatius wrote about it and showed them why the early Christians were martyred as, as um, being cannibals you know, mm-hmm. because of the, their, their soul belief in how true it is. And in Matthew, it talks about, you know, this is my body. And, and they were disgusted by the thought of it. And, and, and it caused the, it, it, it creates incredible conversation and, uh, it's so much fun. And I, and I'm so thankful and I don't know. I don't know. I just wanted to say thanks, man. I said, Oh, <laughs> I've listened to you on the radio the, the app here in Florida.
1: I'm glad. And, um, Thank you. So
3: yeah. please tell your, so, please
1: tell your Protestant friends to listen to the show. And if we can get them yeah. to start tuning in, who knows? I mean, good things can happen, well, right? Yeah.
3: Well, you know, when I challenge them, when I challenge them, I say, you know, don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. Mm-hmm. I'll give you the books. I got a library full of them already. Right. And I continue to compile books. It's like, but a lot of them are afraid to read it because they might find the truth. And that's what happened. That's what caused me Mm -hmm. to start this journey was I was actually challenged by a Catholic and I was set out to prove them wrong. Mm -hmm. And, and the more I read (laughs) the more, I read the more, and prayed about, I prayed, Lord, show me, show me what's right. I'll, I'll, you know, tell me what's right here. And, and, and with every step of the way, when I learned something new that I thought was what I had been taught, you know, actually was something different. It, it caused me to keep searching and keep searching, but it took me 10 years to finally say, okay, I'm ready. This is it. This is, this is the real deal. Um, so anyway, but, uh, yeah, I so much. that is and, and awesome.
1: I, I'm so happy I, for I feel you. Like Chuck. I'm
3: just starting, you know, there's still so much more to learn. There's still so there. I, 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 I'm almost, I, I don't want to say consumed because that sounds kind of addictive, but maybe that's my, my behavior, but, uh, um, yeah, there's so much more. So having out there, I feel like I've just scratched the surface.
1: Indeed, indeed. Well, you certainly have. But what a wonderful journey! And um, I'm really happy to know that listening to Relevant Radio was helpful to you, Chuck. This is great. And um, yeah, let's have Thanks, more doctor. of that. Thank you, Chuck. <laughs> Thank you. I hope our paths cross one of these days. I'd love to meet you in person. And yes, in the meantime, please tell all of your Protestant friends about Relevant Radio. We'll get them listening too. Thank you. 888-914-9149. And I have one more book, well, two, about the papacy that you want to hear about right after this. This hour sponsored by Christendom College. Send your child to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. Use promo code RELEVANTRADIO and get 50% off. Spots fill up very quickly, so apply today at thebestweekever.com that's thebestweekever.com
0: keeping it relevant it's the patrick madrid show on relevant radio get connected to the conversation call now 888-914-9149 that's 888-914-9149 patrick madrid is on now <laughs> relevant radio <laughs>
1: This is a different version of that song. I No, that's it's not the original. Yeah, this is this is what I grew up listening to on the radio driving to high school. Was this it? the Howard Dean remix? No, no, this is the original. Oh. I'm pretty sure not the, not the one I remember. Huh. I I don't know.
2: I don't know what you're
1: talking. Well, about. Well, what do I know? Um uh, two more books, one I wrote. It's called Pope Fiction 30 or a- Answers to 30 Myths and Misconceptions about the Papacy. And a lot of the stuff about the Church Fathers is in that book, if you're interested, Pope Fiction. I had a Protestant guy once, Cyrus, uh, who said, oh, he told me this. He says, oh, I'm just so irked that you came up with that name before I did, because he said, I have this like anti-Catholic, papal, anti-papal book I want to write, and that'd be the perfect title for it, but you got it first. Too bad. Uh, Here's the other one. It's called The Divine Primacy. And it's by James Likoudis, L-I-K-O-U-D-I-S. He is still alive. He's in his 90s, as I understand it, going strong, writing books. And he's a convert from the Greek Orthodox Church to the Catholic Church. And a big part of what led to his conversion was when he began to investigate the Greek Orthodox rejection of the primacy of the Bishop of Rome, he thought, well, I want to find out why. And the more he dug, the more he found out. The more he found out, the more he realized that the evidence is clearly in favor of the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. And yeah, we've had good popes and bad popes and all sorts of popes in between. That's not what's at issue here. What's at issue is what did Jesus say about the role of Peter and his successors? So in this book, it's called The Divine Primacy of the Bishop of Rome and Modern Eastern Orthodoxy. So it takes the form of him writing back and forth. He's writing letters to a Greek Orthodox believer who is challenging Catholic teaching on, primarily on the papacy. So as a former Greek Orthodox believer, he's writing back to this gentleman, and he's providing these quotes from the Church Fathers. He's he's showing many of the misconceptions that are out there. So this is a new book. I just got a review copy, and my thanks to the publishers, from Emmaus Road, by the way. And uh, I would definitely encourage anyone interested in digging deeper into the issue of the papacy, and more specifically, into the polemics that exist between the Eastern Orthodox folks and the Catholic Church, between Protestant folks and the Catholic Church. This kind of material will serve you well if you find yourself in a discussion about that. 888-914-9149. We'll go to Kevin now in Homestead, Florida. Hello, Kevin
4: good morning patrick um, i have a, a comment a, a question and then cover, it is time, a comment if it's time a separate comment okay um i just listened a comment um, a question and a comment
1: okay so yes. we're doing a comment now right yes yes
4: okay so my first comment is i've been i guess i've been thinking about praying about why there's division among believers about saints and so that's the comment okay. and i came up with something that i don't know if you've ever thought of or not because um you said something recently about how the um how in in the in the creed we say jesus rose again right and you you said that's a a function of english how we use english right, right. And so it occurred to me that maybe that's the same thing happening that with 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 saints, as we say we pray to saints.
1: Yes, that's right. right.
4: I think I can really I think here. I
1: can go to the heart of your question here, Kevin. I, I'm anticipating what I think you're referring to. And that is tell me if I have it right, that in the Catholic Church we use the word pray as a verb in two different ways, or prayer as a noun in two different ways. The primary meaning is is the adoration and worship of God by his creatures when we pray to God, we adore Him, we worship Him, we glorify him, right. uh, all of those things. We also, as Catholics, use the word pray in a secondary way, and that is it's invoking the intercession of the saints. so we do pray to Mary we do pray to Saint Anthony when you lose your car keys or we, we pray to the saints insofar as we are addressing them prayerfully and asking them to pray for us. But we don't worship them, obviously. We don't, we don't adore them. Um, there are some Greek terms that were developed early on to describe this. So there's dulia, which is the honor that's due to the saints. Jesus himself said in John 17, Father, I have given them the glory that you have given to me. So when we acknowledge the glory that God has given to his saints that is known as dulia. It's, sometimes people say dulia. And then there's latria, which is the former kind that I was talking about, which is adoration and worship of God alone. So if that's what you're driving at, you're absolutely right. When Protestants hear Catholics talk about praying to Mary, what they're thinking is worship and adoration. Right. But that's not what we mean in context. We, we have a second meaning for the word pray, by and large, generally speaking, Protestants do not, and that's the reason for the division. In some cases, that it's simply a a semantical confusion. They don't they don't realize that we're not saying what they think we're saying. Does that right. make sense?
4: Okay. Yeah, that was that was my question. That's one if you if you thought about that kind of that context. Thank you.
1: Quite <laughs> quite a bit over the years. Um, I wrote a book. I actually I started with an article called "Any Friend of God's is a Friend of Mine." which is available for free. It's on the show page, relevantradio.com Patrick. Click on the links button and you can get to the articles. And that, that article is free. All of the articles there are free. But that article turned out to be so pivotal and helpful for a lot of people that I expanded it into a book by the same title. So this is a topic that's worthy of Catholics taking time biblically to explain to protestant folk what we really mean by these things yeah i think i we will look for that
3: where am i supposed to get it
1: <laughs> well the article would be the, the first thing to do so i would suggest go to the show page relevantradio.com slash patrick click on the links button and you'll find it in the article section it's called any friend of god's is a friend of mine so did you have that other comment you wanted to make
4: Yes, if I may. I don't know if you remember, I called a couple of months ago talking about an accident I was involved in a year ago.
1: An internal decapitation. My... I remember it yes, well. Yes,
4: that's the one. That's the one. And I realized you, you were, you were as surprised that, as I was. And I looked into it a little bit more, and I found there's actually a saint for decapitation.
1: St. Denis. Do tell. I hope I never saint need Dennis. him. Or her? Yeah, I hope so too.
4: But uh, but the saint, Saint Denis? Saint Denis. Ah,
1: Saint. Yeah. But I think from, the, from I think from ten thousand. Very interesting. Well, I thought so. amazing what's out there on the internet. Well, thank you, Kevin. That is interesting. I never knew that. Eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. Let's see. Here's a an email that came in, and this is from. Who uh, is from David? And he says, I'm writing regarding a disturbing conspiracy that some people seem to believe in light of the disapproval of Pope Francis. uh, I don't know what that has to do with this question, but in any case, in short, this conspiracy argues that the 1958 conclave, that's referring to the election of the Pope, and all the conclaves after it are invalid due to forces outside of the church interfering with the appointment of a cardinal in favor of who would become John, or Pope John the 23rd. The reason this is disturbing to me is that it seems, at least for some in the United States, that this is a justification to declare that the papal office is vacant. I myself do not ascribe to this conspiracy, but feel that it should be talked about to avoid falling outside of the church. Do you know anything about this? Yes, I do. If you could educate us, is it valid or is it false? And, um... Yeah, I can, I can talk about that, David. So, first of all, the cardinal in question was Cardinal Siri. Um, his full name was, uh, let's see, his, I'm going to give you his full name in Italian here. And where is it? Giuseppe, and I'll leave out all the middle names. So, Giuseppe. Giuseppe Siri, S-I-R-I. He was a cardinal who, by all appearances and by the accounts that have been given, he was the cardinal who received the majority of votes necessary to be elected pope in that conclave in 1958. There is, I think, enough, enough information or enough evidence to suggest that this may indeed have been the case. But he was blocked. And, you know, there are theories, you know, why was he blocked? If he was the one who won, why didn't he become pope? And so there are different theories about that. One theory is that he was pressured to say that he wouldn't accept it. Um, Other other people say that Freemasons or political powers in Europe uh, said, no, we don't want this guy. Bad things will happen if he becomes Pope. And so the theory or the conspiracy theory is that he basically backed down and did not accept the papacy because of these external forces and that the runner-up, Pope Pius XII, um, uh, he was the cardinal secretary of state at that time, and that he became the pope, which he did. So he was elected pope in 1958. So, I'm sorry, um, Pope John XXIII was, because pope, P- pope Pius XII had just died. So Pope John XXIII was elected pope in 1958. So this is an unproven theory There are some interesting details that suggest that there may be something to it. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter, because in order for a man who's elected pope to actually be pope, he has to accept it. So if a cardinal were, let's say, let's say he won by the necessary majority in the conclave, and they said, guess what? You're the new pope. And he said, guess what? No, I'm not. I don't accept it. He would not therefore be Pope. And so even if his rejection of his election were based on pressure or fear or laziness, I mean, you can fill in the blank. There could be a lot of different reasons why a man might not want to accept that position. The fact is that he did not accept it, and therefore he was not a valid Pope. And that does not invalidate the acceptance of the man who received the next number of votes, which would be Angelo Roncalli in the case of Pope John Twenty-Third. So, this is part of the fever swamp of Sede Vacantism, which holds. And, and this is not the only conspiracy theory that leads some people to embrace the Sede Vacantist position. Sede Vacantism is a portmanteau it's a, it's a made-up word of two Latin words, the one for chair and the one for empty, vacans, empty. And so the Sedevacantism is this theory that the chair of Peter has been vacant since, and there are various groups that claim various times. Most of them tend to say, from the time of this election in 1958 forward, none of the popes have been validly elected because Cardinal Siri would have been the pope and, and all of that. Uh, Some go even further back. They say back to the election of uh, Pope Pius XI, that he was the last validly elected pope. So there are variations on a theme here. But the thing to note is that, as I said a moment ago, if the man who's elected doesn't accept it, then he's not the pope. And that's part of the answer to this question. Now, if you wanted to get more detail, I'd go to the Catholic Answers website it's Catholic.com. Easy to remember and just type in Sedevakantism, Sedevacantism, S-E-D-E-V-A-C-A-N-T-I-S-M, Sedevacantism, and you'll find articles and things that go deeper into this issue. I'm just giving you something off the top of my head, but there's more that can be said about that. And don't worry, the vacantists have all of their pet arguments and theories and comebacks and counter-arguments and You know, it's not as though, you know, they haven't heard the Catholic response to their theories, but there are good Catholic responses to their theories. So that's my point. I would recommend taking a look at that. I think that'll provide some assistance. Uh, 888-914-9149. We're going to have to take a break here. So we'll come back right after that break. You can call now. We'll get you on the air. That's for sure. I hear that a lot. Uh, Also, make your Lenten journey with your parish this year with Father Rocky's Lenten Lessons on the Mass, sponsored in part by the National Center for Padre Pio. These free daily videos are bite-sized explorations of prayers and postures that will transform your perspective on the Mass and re-energize your parish community. Sign up and share with your family at relevantradio.com Lent. That's relevantradio.com Lent. Free and there for you. Now!